Hey leaders, before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you about a free event that I'm hosting, your personal leadership audit live workshop. I've put the workshop together because if you want to stand out as an exceptional leader, you have to know yourself inside and out. Understanding your strengths and weaknesses is critical. And for that, you need a high degree of self-awareness and a commitment to self-reflection. Now, if you're committed to unlocking your leadership potential, then working through a self-assessment like this is going to help you to quickly identify a path to higher impact. I'll be leading you through a deep dive into the seven imperatives of my No Bullshit Leadership Framework, so that by the end of the session, you'll know exactly what areas you need to develop if you really want to stand out from the crowd. We're only opening up 150 spots, so register now at yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. That's yourceomentor.com forward slash workshop. Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more. Access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 275 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, When Should You Let Someone Go? Are Gunter's days numbered? One of the most common questions I feel from both our podcast audience and our clients is, Marty, how much time should I give someone when they're not performing before I make the decision to let them go? I've been meaning to do a general podcast episode on this for ages, but I kept kicking the can down the road because of other, more pressing topics in our content roadmap. However, 
I was given pause for thought last weekend as I watched the final race of the Formula One motor racing season. This year's F1 season was pretty boring at the top of the championship points table because Max Verstappen and the Red Bull team completely dominated the competition. They romped home with the title, with Daylight coming second. But the bottom of the table was as intriguing as the top of the table was boring. Eight years after joining the Formula One competition, perennial cellar dwellers, the Haas F1 team, took the wooden spoon for last place. And the man who has led that team from the start, Gunther Steiner, is still at the helm of the team. So I found myself wondering, how does Gunther still have a job? But more on this shortly. Like most questions in business, the answer to the question, when is it time for someone to go, is, it depends. Your job as a leader is to work out what it depends upon and to make a decisive judgment call. So I'll start today with Gunther Steiner and the Haas F1 team. I'm then going to cover off on some of the considerations you'll have to mull over when you're trying to decide how to treat an underperformer. And I'm going to finish today with an invaluable resource, my six-point decision-making framework that you can use in any circumstance to make decisions about an underperforming person. I've even got a downloadable resource for this, which you can pick up at yourceomentor.com forward slash episode 275. So let's get into it. I was never really into motorsports, but then I came across the Netflix documentary series, Drive to Survive, when it was first released in 2019. I found the whole Formula One business model quite intriguing. For a start, it's the elite pointy end of motorsport. There are only 10 teams with two drivers per team. 20 cars in each race, battling it out for individual and team points in a season that spans 23 races. There's the massive capital investment required from team owners. It's a relatively expensive sport. Let's face it, these teams don't spring up from GoFundMe campaigns. Then there's the coordination and teamwork required end-to-end throughout the whole organisation, from car design through to engineering, data analysis, pit crews, and of course the glamour boys, the drivers. And yes, I was intrigued by the decisions that needed to be made by the team owners, principals and CEOs under extreme pressure and in an incredibly cutthroat, competitive environment. I released a podcast a couple of years ago examining the culture and competitive dynamics of Formula One. It was episode 179, Survival of the Fittest, which you may enjoy re-listening to. After following several Formula One seasons now, I've formed a few conclusions. Decision-making is fairly swift, but it's not really brutal or impulsive. It's not unreasonable in what's clearly a performance-based culture. From team principals down to drivers, the culture supports the view that you can either perform or you can make way for someone who can perform. So we've seen the departure of team principals, uh, Claire Williams at Williams Racing, uh, Mattia Bonotto at Ferrari, and this year the Alpine team did a comprehensive mid-season clean-out from top down. Drivers seem to come and go regularly. But there's also a bit of a revolving door culture as well, where drivers move between teams. Just since I've been watching the sport, Aussie Daniel Ricciardo has gone from the Red Bull team to Renault to McLaren and now to Alpha Tauri. Through all of this, though, I'm left with one mystifying question. How on earth does Gunther Steiner still have a job? 
Steiner has been team principal of Haas Racing since its inception in 2014. In the eight years that Haas has been competing in F1, it has underperformed miserably. The team peaked in 2018, its third season in the competition, when it took fifth place out of 10 in the Constructors' Championship. But since 2018, its results have been underwhelming to say the least. Ninth, ninth, tenth, eighth, and in the season just completed, tenth. And still, Steiner remains team principal of Haas. Now, the team owner, Gene Haas, is an American success story. He started Haas Automation in the early 1980s. His company peaked at a billion dollars of sales in 2014, and that was the same year he started the Haas F1 team. Who knows why Gene Haas continues to back Steiner? They seem to have a good relationship, and Steiner is undoubtedly loyal, having reportedly knocked back several offers from other teams. But why does Gene Haas put up with the lack of results from Steiner? Where does the buck actually stop? Well, first off, there could be many reasons for the poor results. For a start, Haas Racing doesn't have the same level of funding as other teams do. It probably has around a third of the budget of top teams like Mercedes and Red Bull and Ferrari. It's pretty hard to compete effectively under these circumstances. And of course, this type of investment differential was the basis of Michael Lewis's classic book, Moneyball, which explored these differentials in Major League Baseball. But from the documentary Drive to Survive, it's also clear that Steiner has established a relationship with Gene Haas that sees him simultaneously taking responsibility for failures, while seeming incredibly contrite and frustrated, and somehow promising to do better. Now, to be honest, that would have worn thin on me by now. Every time I hear one of Steiner's post-race conversations with Gene Haas, the only thing going through my head is, Gene, the dog ate my homework again. And let's face it, Steiner's pretty popular. He's definitely one of the most colourful characters in the documentary. And it could well be the case that he's good for the Haas brand and the overall Haas business beyond the competitive world of Formula One. He certainly brought a higher profile to the Haas team that many of the other team principals don't enjoy. This, in and of itself, may be creating value for Gene Haas. Whatever the reason, a couple of things are really clear. Haas is obviously considering more than just the on-track performance in making the decision to stick with Steiner as his team principal. Steiner's popularity is surely a key part of that equation. And there will always be complexities that outsiders, in this case me, can't actually see. But as with my question, how on earth does Gunther still have a job, everyone will have an opinion about how you're handling any underperformance in your team. And it's never as straightforward as it seems from the outside. Getting back to the original question, how do you know when it's time to let someone go? Well, there are a lot of factors to consider. Importantly, is the effort and commitment there? In the absence of effort, your decision-making becomes easier and the timelines become shorter. But more on this in a minute. You know my overriding principle. It's a lot easier to rein in a stallion than it is to flog a donkey. People at least have to want to improve. Sometimes, they're going to disguise the fact that they don't, and you might well think it's something you're doing wrong. It's not. But let's assume, for the moment, that the individual's actually trying. You need to think about how big the gap is between their current performance 
and the minimum acceptable standard. If the gap is huge, it may take a really long time to get them to reach that performance bar. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, can I afford the time, the distraction, the interim performance deficit, and the drain on my own personal resources to see this through? Then I guess you have to ask, what's the root cause of the problem? Does this person lack specific training? Are they new to the role, the company, or even the industry? Is there something else about the context that means it's going to take them more or less time to meet your expectations? If you understand the root cause, it's going to be easier to come up with a prognosis. You have to think about how complex the learning curve is that they're being asked to climb. For example, when I hired executives who were new to the company, I would generally give them six months to become independent performers, reaching that minimum acceptable standard. And even though I set a pretty high bar, I still gave them plenty of time to get there. It was a complex and difficult environment that they had to contend with. But a CEO that I know who runs a very successful global company told me that when his business hires entry-level accountants, if they aren't fully productive within two weeks, they're sacked. Now, this is on the basis that if they understood the things they were supposed to have mastered in their formal qualifications, then they would be able to do that entry-level work without difficulty. Then there are individual factors. Not everyone's the same. Some people are less capable and mature than others. I really like the situational leadership theory model to apply here. You should lead your people using different styles depending on their level of maturity and capability. And this can become a little tricky because it means, by definition, that you have to put more time into the less productive, capable and effective people. Time that would be no doubt better spent trying to leverage the capability of your high performers. The key thing about situational leadership theory that people don't tend to talk about is that you have to be able to see consistent, appropriate improvement in those who are at the lower end of the capability and maturity scale. Trend is your friend. If you don't see a trend of improvement at an appropriate pace, then you have a performance issue that you need to deal with. And in these cases, your indulgence shouldn't be limitless. But, you know, we all want to be compassionate. We want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And we all want to be liked and seen as caring, humanistic leaders. So our power of rationalisation kicks in. And we'll construct a thousand reasons why the person isn't really an underperformer after all. Excuses like, oh, she gets on really well with everyone. Or, um, <laughs> he's an innovative thinker. Or even, I'm short-staffed and it's better than having no one. Or, of course, the classic, I know he hasn't performed to date, but I think he'll be better under my leadership. <laughs> Look, all of these are dangerous emotional crutches to support your own personal comfort, to lull you into a false sense of security, and to seduce you into inaction. And there goes your culture. Every situation's different. So I can't give you a specific answer to the question, when should you let someone go? What I can do is give you a framework for thinking through these complexities when you need to make a decision about an underperformer. One of the most powerful free resources I've ever created is available for you on this. It's my free six-point PDF checklist that you can have as a companion to help you through the process. You can download this at yourceomentor.com forward slash episode 275. 
There are no hard and fast rules, but if you go through this process and apply your knowledge of the situation and you use your judgment, you'll find it much easier to arrive at an answer that you're comfortable with. The first rule seems pretty obvious. Start at the bottom of the deck. Deal with your worst performers first, even if they are the more difficult or daunting cases. Now these ones are often the trickiest, and your predecessors may have neglected them because they're too hard to deal with. If this is the case, then over time these people have become entrenched and emboldened. But if you don't start here, you're unlikely to start anywhere. Remember, the quality of your team isn't set by your strongest performer, it's set by your weakest performer. The other people on your team won't show you what they're capable of until you demonstrate that you're serious about setting and enforcing a minimum acceptable standard for both behaviour and performance. So act decisively with the worst performer, then see what everyone else chooses to do as a result. Step two, make an assessment of the individual's intent. Is this person trying to do the right thing? Are they on board with your leadership approach and at least putting in the effort to achieve the required results? Often, if you're trying to bring culture change, you'll find strong, passive-aggressive resistance from the old guard because you're effectively disrupting their power base. And look, often these people are long-standing employees who are respected by their peers for their knowledge. Don't be fooled by this. If they don't want to play ball, you need to confiscate their bat. Now, even though that might sound brutal, and of course a lot of new-age, touchy-feely consultants will tell you that you have to support these people to change, that's bullshit. You don't. If you have someone who has no intention of getting on the bus, you've got to get them off. Fast. If you can't get someone to meet you halfway, err on the side of speed. Within the appropriate processes, of course. To get the lowdown on this, have a listen to episode 56, Dealing with Change Resistance. Let's assume, though, that you have someone with the right intent who's actually trying to meet the standard. You can move on to step three. Make sure they have the empowerment and the autonomy that they need to be successful. Are your expectations realistic? Does this person have clarity of objectives? Do they have appropriate resourcing? Have you been available to support them? Have you supported their decision-making rights that keep their accountability rock solid? Have you protected them from internal politics and the ever-shifting work demands from above? If not, implement and strengthen anything that's missing. If you don't have the confidence that you've done your job as a leader, you're going to find it really hard to make decisions on someone else's performance under that leadership. Step number four, think about any recent underperformance in the context of the individual's historical performance. Sometimes you have a person who's always been a decent performer whose performance has just nosedived recently. So ask yourself the question, what's changed? Sometimes there's going to be an answer in the work environment that you can point to and rectify. A new team, uh, a new project, a difficult peer, resourcing challenges. Other times, there might be something going on in their personal lives that's causing a lack of focus. Health issues, dying parents, an out-of-control teenager, a new baby, relationship breakups. In these cases, be compassionate and be tolerant. Work out a way to help them through 
while not just accepting a new lower performance standard from them. Some of the trickiest issues here are around mental health. So if you're in this situation, have a listen to episode 185, The Mental Health Minefield. That's a must listen. If you help someone and support them while they solve their personal issues, you will have built an extremely loyal, committed employee. Then you just have to make sure they're meeting the minimum acceptable standard. Number five in the framework. Let's say we get through all of that. The next step is to set and communicate clear targets for improvement. When do you expect the individual to reach the expected performance milestones? For example, I need to see this level of improvement by the end of the month. Or, I need to see work of this quality by date X. Or, I've had to step in this time to correct your work, but next time I need to see you making a better fist of it without my intervention. Or, I need you to be able to make these decisions independently by date Y. This is going to ensure that they're given clarity of objectives and you can frame your ongoing dialogue with them along those lines. Finally, make an assessment on the speed of improvement. Did I say trend is your friend? Think about these factors. Is this individual actually getting better or do they continue to make the same mistakes over and over? Do they take one step forward and two steps back? Do they perform to standard when I'm looking, then revert as soon as I turn away from them? Your objective is to ensure that everyone can perform their role independently without the need for your constant intervention. And here's a good test to bear in mind as you support individual improvement with your concentrated personal time and effort. If someone demonstrates their ability to perform to the standard consistently for just a few weeks in a row, then they already have the capability. If they drop below the mark after that, that's not a capability issue. That is a choice. Now, ironically, if you are asking how you'd know when it's time to let someone go, you probably already know the answer to that question. You're probably just bargaining about how far down the road you can kick the can to avoid the pain of executing your inevitable decision. I've always found it's better for everyone, including the individual, to rip the band-aid off quickly. Here's the perfect remedy to stop you from procrastinating. You have to turn every one of these cases into a two-part decision. The first decision is, do they need to go? The second decision is, if so, what's the best way to execute that decision? You're much more likely to make the right decision if you don't focus on the complexities of executing that decision. You'll save yourself from all sorts of rationalizations which would otherwise stop you from making the right decision at the right time. Rationalizations like, what if they go out on stress leave? Or, I just don't have the time to go through the performance management process right now. Or, how will we manage their accounts without disrupting our customers? Or, what if I can't find a replacement for that role? So make the call first, then work out how to execute it later. That gives you time to minimise risk, to create a solid plan to move forward with, and to work out the most compassionate way to exit the individual. 
don't let the complexities of execution cloud what would otherwise be a really straightforward decision. Look, it's never easy to decide to let someone go. But if you stick your head in the sand when you're confronted with an underperformer, your team will become inevitably mediocre. Your poor performers are going to stay, and anyone decent who wants to be on a winning team is going to find other alternatives. Dealing with your underperformers in a way that's both decisive and compassionate will ensure that, over time, everyone understands what they need to do to meet the standard that you're trying to set. And who knows, one day even Gunther might have to look for a new job. All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 275. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please make sure you rate and review this podcast so that we can reach even more leaders. I look forward to next week's episode, Building Your Leadership Confidence. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no-bullshit leader. 